Take your Bible to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Now I would preach a sermon on mothers, but as preacher said, there's just not a whole lot of uh, scripture on, on mothers. He preached on a pretty good one this morning. I figured I couldn't improve on what he preached on this morning, so we'll just leave mothers alone tonight. You do a good job, moms. Thank you for all that you do. And uh, I related to preachers saying it's hard to find a Mother's Day card, especially when you don't go look for one. So I probably need to get on that. But if I wait till tomorrow, they're like 75% off. So uh, anyway, Numbers chapter 14. We will read quite a few scriptures this evening. Verse number 1 all the way down through verse number 25. So... Um, some churches have people stand. I certainly see nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's actually in Scripture. There's an example of that. We do not stand because it's not commanded in Scripture. But here's what I ask you to do. Anytime we read Scripture, how about you give the honor that Scripture is due by paying attention to it? Uh, if you stand, it's an outward symbol. But if you're thinking about your grocery list, what is that accomplishing? And the same thing, if we sit down and we're not giving God's Word the proper reference it deserves, we too are foolish. And we're making an error. So tonight, can I just encourage you throughout the next 25 verses, may you pay attention to what Scripture has to say. And honestly, I would much rather you tune me out than tune Scripture out. Because I'll try to keep your interest throughout it all, but what I have to say is far inferior to what Scripture has to say this evening. So Numbers chapter 14, verse number 1, the Bible says... And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Now, if you read much of Exodus or Numbers, you find that that's a pretty common statement in these two books. The Bible says, And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. That's what we oftentimes do. We don't like to, very, very rarely we like to associate ourselves with the children of Israel, but oftentimes we find we do the exact same thing as the children of Israel. The moment we begin to question God, what we do is we find self-prescribed solutions to each situation that we find ourselves in, just like they did. They said, let us make a captain. Let's take charge of our own situation. What a foolish endeavor that is for a Christian to do. The Bible says in verse number 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their face before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into the land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. 
And the Lord said unto Moses in verse number 11, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among his people, that thou art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them. Therefore hath he slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from uh, from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live... All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. My servant Caleb... Because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Let me ask you a question. How many times must God prove himself to us before we believe him? You see the passage here, basically the previous chapter, we find the children of Israel sending the spies into the promised land. We understand the story that ten men went into Canaan uh, uh, and they came back and and two of them had a good report. Uh, The other spies did not have a good report. They even said, we were as grasshoppers in our eyes. It was a sad situation for the Lord had promised if they would go into Canaan land and they would choose to follow God, that He would deliver the land into their hands. It's really a sad day. And yet we find throughout Scripture that the children of Israel had the privilege and the opportunity of seeing God work for them like very few other people of God ever have. Over and over and over again we find God doing wonderful things for them so that He might bring them to this place and to this decision. 
Last week we looked at glory as Moses looked at God and said, show me thy glory. What did glory mean? Well, we understand that God's glory is his ultimate perfection in any and every category. Whatever category that may be, whether it's his goodness, whether it's his holiness, whether it's his righteousness, whether it's his love, whether it's compassion, whether it's mercy, whether it's grace. You see, God is the standard that we cannot even begin to judge. He is perfect and full in every category. He is glorious. And so we looked at that last week and Moses got to see God's goodness, the glory of the Lord as the Lord allowed His goodness to pass by him there. We studied that last week. But really what we find here is the children of Israel have seen God's glory over and over and over again. At least three different occasions in Scripture we find the children of Israel seeing God's glory. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 16 verse number 10... When the children of Israel complained against God and said, we should have just stayed in Egypt where we had uh, bread and we had meat. We were right there. We had everything we needed. Yeah, but you were in bondage. The Bible tells us in Exodus 16 verse 10, And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and notice this, And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. You see, they saw the glory of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about Moses here. Moses had a unique relationship that we cannot necessarily understand, frankly. But I'm talking about the children of Israel saw God's glory. The Bible goes on to tell us in Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments or the law of God, Exodus chapter 24 said, And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of of Israel. Two different occasions we find God's glory, His absolute presence resting right in front of the children of Israel. Two different times. There's a third time actually in Scripture where the glory of the Lord descends upon the tabernacle. They uh, uh, arrange the tabernacle there and the Bible says in verse number 34 of Exodus 40, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse number 38 actually tells us, For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. So, you say, Brother Andrew, what are you trying to explain to us? Well, what I'm trying to teach you is, God's glory was not specifically reserved for God's man. God's glory on several occasions was seen by the children of Israel. Not only was His glory seen, but His miracles were seen. You see, Moses wasn't the only guy that crossed the Red Sea. Moses wasn't the only guy that ate of the quail and ate of the manna. All of these people had some portion in experiencing God's goodness and His glory. And yet we find them there at the precipice about to enter into the promised land, questioning God's ability. You see, that's what we often do. As we face new challenges in life, what we fail to remember is every challenge brings with it an opportunity to increase in faith. Every challenge brings with it the opportunity to embrace and experience God's glory like never before. But when we face these challenges, oftentimes what we do, like the children of Israel, is we question God's ability. 
You see in verse number uh, 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 of the previous verses of the previous chapter, verse number 33, the Bible says, And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. What a sad day when they saw some big opposition, and instead of choosing to honor and obey God, they chose to bow down and cower at the opposition. But oftentimes that's what we do when we question God's ability to deliver us. Sometimes not only do we question His ability, but we question God's plan. We question whether or not God has a sovereign plan for us and an expected point where He wants to bring us. The Bible says in verse number 2, All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? You see, God's plan was never for them to leave Egypt in wonder. God's plan was to bring them out and put them in. God's plan was for them to have a destiny, a place where God could receive glory from them, and yet they questioned God's plan for their life. You say, I would never question God's plan or God's ability. Well, you're a much better Christian than me. Because sometimes in our face of opposition, that's what we do. Instead of relying and trusting God, we question whether subconsciously or not, we question God's ability and God's plan. Sometimes we even question God's leadership. Verse number 4, the Bible said, And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. As I mentioned before, we like to pilot our own ship. We like to be the boss of our own life. But that's not the way the Christian life is to be lived. You see, Christian, what God has done is He's set up for you a, a safety net of counselors, if you will. Certainly you should surround yourself with spiritual advisors and counselors. And, and, and Moses is serving in that role for the nation of Israel. And they say Moses' leadership and God's ordained leadership is not good enough for us. Let us choose a captain for ourselves. Let me ask you a question and I, I, I say this humbly. When is the last time that you sought counsel from a spiritual advisor in your life? Maybe a pastor. Maybe a, a Sunday school teacher. When's the last time you sought counsel? You see, God has allowed spiritual people into our lives. I, I can't imagine what I would do if I decided to go $30,000, $40,000, dollars in debt or, or buying a home and never sought any counsel at all save the counsel of my own knowledge. What a shame that would be. People do this kind of stuff all the time. They come home with keys to a new pickup truck and the wife never was consulted. The pastor was never consulted. Now they just have a $50,000 bill of debt hanging over their head and now they're in trouble. Have you ever used the system of God's leadership he set up over you? Now, the pastor isn't going to lord his knowledge or experience over you, but my point is this. Sometimes we begin to question even God's leadership that He set up for us. You say, well, I, would, I, would, I don't need your counsel. Well, why should your children need your counsel? You see, you are a spiritual advisor to your child. The pastor is a spiritual advisor to you. And I'm not here trying to get you to come to me with all your problems. Frankly, I don't want to hear your problems. But my point is this. God has said there is safety in a multitude of counsel. 
You can go to people in your life. But the children of Israel said, we don't want what you have. And oftentimes that's the case. When people come to me or preacher with counsel, they often disagree with our counsel and they make their own captain. We disagree and we question God's leadership. We question His plan and we question His ability. Let me ask you, have you ever seen God work in your life? Like I'm not talking about for your friend or for your neighbor, for your relative, or maybe someone you were praying for. I'm talking about have you ever seen God work in your life? Well, if you're saved tonight, the answer is absolutely. Because there is no time in the Christian life after salvation where we will ever experience anything better than the moment of salvation. The moment when our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, when they're tossed into the depths of the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's the best day in the Christian life. So if you're saved this evening, you've seen God work for you. But certainly I would believe that for most of us, somewhere along the course of life's journey, we have seen God work for us in special ways, unique ways, ways where we didn't have an answer, Ways where we didn't necessarily know how we were going to get through a situation. And God came through for us right on time. That's God. Let me ask you, how many times must He do that so that we can trust Him next time? Because at the precipice of every opportunity or every opposition is an opportunity to trust God. The children of Israel had seen God's glory and witnessed the miracles. And this is the title of the sermon. But that glory had long faded away. That glory had long faded away. The memory of God's glory filling the temple was no longer in the forefront of their mind. The memory of God's glory hovering on Mount Sinai there as Moses is receiving God's law, His instruction, His written word for His people. That memory was long in the background. The memory of God uh, revealing Himself to them in the wilderness and giving them the manna and the quail. The memory of God's glory appearing to them was long in the background. The memory of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The memory of the Red Sea crossing. The memory of the defeat of Egypt. The memory of the Passover lamb. All of this gone. And now they question God, His goodness, His power, His plan. Really, Christian, we don't like to identify with it very much, but we're a lot like the children of Israel. Asking God to prove Himself to us one more time as if the last time wasn't enough. Here's what I want to teach to you tonight. Three pit stops on the road to faded glory. Three pit stops on the road to faded glory. Number one, in our passage tonight, we'll see an emphatic reminder. You see the children of Israel now, they're on their way to the promised land, and yet this evil report comes back from the spies. You know the story of that. And yet there's an emphatic reminder here from two different sources. Number one, the first source is this. Through the appeals of Joshua and Caleb. Verse number 6, the Bible says this, Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into the land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. 
Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. I'll tell you what every Christian needs. A couple Joshua and Caleb's in their life. Surround yourself with people that when your Christian life is becoming dull, they'll be able to sharpen you. Surround yourself with a Joshua and Caleb when your mind begins to wander and your faith begins to flee from the place that you know it ought to be. And those weak moments of the Christian life, surround yourself with Joshua and Caleb's that will pull you back and say, fear not the people of the land, but trust that God will bring this to pass. Everybody needs a Joshua and Caleb in their life. The sad situation is that there were two reports brought back from the spies of the land and one of them was... Based on fact, and here's the sad reality, the other one was based on fact. Both of them were honest in their appeal, and both of them were honest in in their approximation of the land. They, They saw it, and they said, this is what we saw. We saw giants. We saw huge opposition. We saw problems galore. And the Lord said those problems would exist. Both presented facts, but the way that they viewed these facts was in total opposition of one another. The way they presented these facts was different. You see, one presented it like this. Oh, there's problems galore and we're not able to handle it. The other presented it like this. Oh, there's problems galore and there's opportunities galore. And I just believe if we trust God, He'll deliver the land into our hand. You see, that's what happens. How do you view your problems? You see, there's really only two ways to view them. Faith or sight. Oftentimes what we like to think is faith and sight are counter opposites to one another. That's not entirely true. Faith and sight are not enemies. They're just long distance. They're in a long distance relationship with one another. You see, faith and sight can be, can be present together, but they don't have to be present together for obedience to be expected. See, sometimes God asks you to step out in faith and you may not see the next step and God still expects obedience. In some cases, God's glory filled the room or God's glory hovered on Mount Sinai there and they got to see and believe. You see, faith and sight aren't enemies. They're just in a long distance relationship with one another. Sometimes we do get to see, but sometimes we don't. But when you are faced with these problems, which one do you rely on the most? See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When you have faith, you have all the evidence and substance that you need to pursue God's plan for your life. You see, David and Goliath is a pretty unique story. We remember that little shepherd boy. We all imagine him, or I imagine him like a little red-headed Andrew. You know, have you all ever seen the Robin Hood picture of me where we're at fall festival? And that's kind of how I picture David, just a short little kid with freckles all over. That was too early for the zit stage. We weren't even there yet. And I imagine David, just a young little kid going to the battlefield and And there he stands and looks at the same giant that every soldier in the Jewish army had been looking at. What was the difference? One viewed him through faith, the others viewed him through sight. 
Even Eliab, his oldest brother, said, What do you come down to the battle just to see the battle? Is that why you're here, David? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. I know why you're here. You just want to come and see it all. And David looks at Eliab and looks all around him and says, Is there not a cause? How are we going to let this Philistine blaspheme God? How are we going to allow this? What was the difference? Oh, David the whole time believed God could deliver the giant into any of their hands. Faith versus sight. How do you you view your problems? Joshua and Caleb viewed it through faith. All the other spies viewed it through sight. You see, there was one emphatic reminder through their appeals, but the second emphatic reminder came through this, through the anger of the Lord. Notice in verse number 11, very few times in Scripture... Do we find the Lord this angry, or at least that's my estimation. You can believe however you want on that. But the Bible says this, this is pretty serious. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long wilt this people provoke me? And how long wilt it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Man, that's pretty tough language. See, God's providence in our life ought to be used to strengthen our faith. Every time God comes through for us, we ought to build our faith and trust a little bit more each and every time. Honestly, oftentimes what happens for Christians is God proves himself and we never take a step in trusting him more the next day. We stay in an elementary stage of faith. I got to be honest, I enjoyed elementary in school, didn't you? I mean, I got recess. There were grades I got nap times. Movie days were more prevalent than they were in high school. I mean, I enjoyed elementary. But God's plan for you is not that you would stay in elementary as a, as a, a faith Christian. God wants you to grow. God wants you to mature and develop your faith. And you know how you do that? Every time he comes through for you, it's an opportunity to build and strengthen your faith in him. My wife is a unique person. I want to say happy Mother's Day. You're pretty awesome. I hope that's not our child you're holding. Um, uh, man, oh, flashbacks. Oh. If it was, I probably wouldn't be going home tonight. Amen. Three's enough. But my wife is so unique. She's taught me so much about being a Christian. And you say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's the way it is. My wife is special in this sense. Sometimes you'll be going to a grocery store or to, uh, I guess Walmart is a grocery store, but wherever we're going, and my wife will, is driving her minivan, you know, it's super manly minivan. It's about as manly a model as a minivan as you can purchase, honestly. I chose that and say that just for my own pride. But we'll be driving and it's very unique. We'll pull up and I can't tell you how many times this has happened. We pull up in a, a crowded parking lot and a space right up front opens up. I, I know this sounds ridiculous, but it happens all the time. Now, if it's me, I'm parking way in Timbuktu, but my wife, she gets all these open spots. And you know what she says each and every time this happens? Thank you, Lord. At first, I thought it was a little bit corny. Ain't gonna lie. I was like, okay, super Christian. But you know what? She believes it. 
And you know what I think it's doing for her is it's building her faith that if God wins small battles, he may just one day win a big battle for her. How, how much, how many battles must God win for us for our faith to grow and strengthen in him? You see, there is, first of all, an emphatic reminder. That's the first pit stop on the road to faded glory, an emphatic reminder. But secondly, I want you to see this, an empathetic request, an empathetic request. Notice in verse number 11, this is very unique, but the Bible says that Moses, when God tells him, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and I'm going to make of you a great nation. He essentially makes a new covenant with Moses and says, I'm going to wipe these complainers, these murmurers off the face of the earth, and I am going to allow you to be essentially the new Abraham. Now to an Israelite, that would be the ultimate. Abraham is the patriarch. He is a man of faith. He's so revered in their culture. This would have been an opportunity. I mean, if Moses was the guy that was looking for promotion, God just laid it to his doorstep. But you see, leadership is not about self-promotion. A spiritual leader ought to be about helping others. And that's exactly what Moses does. Moses takes the role of leadership, and he begins to plea with God that he not do what he's saying he's doing. And I like the fact that he does this. He takes on the role of an advocate for the children of Israel, doesn't he? He is the one who they're complaining about, and yet he is the one who is supposed to be leading them. He perfectly understands both parties. He understands the anger of God because they're complaining that he's not a qualified leader. Remember, they tried selecting a new captain. There's nothing worse than being told, you're not qualified to lead, and then somebody's going to come and take your job. I can imagine that would be awful. So, So Moses understands God's position... But he also understands the children of Israel's position because he's, he deals with these people every day. This is not the first time he's heard them complain. He understands that they don't have a lot of faith. And so he is the perfect advocate. He is intercessing between God the Father and his righteous anger and the children of Israel and their sin against God. Remind you of anyone? The Bible tells us in 1 John that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In fact, the reason that our advocate is so perfectly qualified for the position is he was one of us. He came to this earth and he faced every temptation in uh, in, in, in man's flesh. And he dealt with every problem and and he felt every heartache and he understands what you're going through. But he also understands the righteousness of God and God's holy standards. And so therefore we have Jesus Christ, our intercessor. He's our advocate with the Father. Moses now stands and basically holds the same position that Christ holds for us. And I like this about Moses. He understands three things about God. Number one, he understands God's purpose. You see, from the time that God selected Abraham, God's purpose for the children of Israel was that God would begin to show the world his goodness through his dealings with them. Can you understand that? 
God tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Like no other nation has ever been blessed. And I challenge you, if you are interested in this type of deal, go look up how many Jewish Nobel Peace Prize winners there have been. Because it is absurd in the, uh, absurdly in the interest of Jewish people. You say, how's that happen? Well, I know how it happens. God says, I'm going to bless your nation like no other country. And so God blesses Abraham. And he also said, I'm going to bless them that bless you. That's why America ought to stand with Israel. I'm happy Jerusalem is now, our embassy is being moved to Jerusalem. We ought to stand with Israel. Only if America wants to be continually blessed by God. And that's about the only thing America ought to be blessed for right now. Amen. But Moses understood God's purpose. He understood that God wanted to be revealed to the rest of mankind through his goodness through to the children of Israel. Verse number 13, that's what Moses says. But the Egyptians shall hear it, Lord. Verse number 14, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. Oh, now verse number 15. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land. You see, Moses understands God's grand purpose for the children of Israel. He understands that God was supposed to reveal his power through the weakness of Israel. Oh, he, he, he allowed this small nation that's in bondage to defeat the great nation Egypt. And Moses' first uh, request to God is, but God, if you do this, everything you've done thus far in delivering the children from Egypt is all going to be in vain. It's going to get back to them and they're going to know that you weren't strong enough to bring the children of Israel out of the wilderness. God's purpose is revealed all throughout Scripture for the nation of Israel. Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, he's referencing Israel, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Verse number 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Sounds a little bit like the New Testament local church, doesn't it? Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Verse 21 of Isaiah 43. The people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. Oh, the church and Israel are not the same in Scripture. The church is God's vessel of delivering the message of the gospel to the rest of the world. But Israel is God's chosen nation, and they are still a chosen nation. God's plan, though, and His purpose was to show His goodness through Israel. Did you know... That God's purpose for you is that He would show His goodness through you? The Bible says, ye are the light of the world. It says, so let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's just unique how Moses here is interceding between God and Israel. And then we have Jesus Christ that does the same thing for us. Jesus understands the purpose of God in your life. 
See, Moses understood God's purpose. He also understood God's power. Verse number 17. The Bible says, And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great. Now, are we sure that's what Moses wants to pray for right now? Think about this. God is angry. He just decided to wipe all of Israel off the face of the map. He says, I'm going to take them all. And Moses, you are going to be the one who I'm going to show my glory through now. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Moses' prayer is this. Lord, now show thy great power. I don't know if that's what we want. Because God can display his power by the snap of his fingers and a whole nation fall dead. Is that what Moses wants? Stay with me and learn something great here, okay? Learn something unique. The Bible says in verse number 18, Moses prays that the Lord would would show his great power. And then verse number 18, he shows exactly what he was talking about. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Oh, that's good. And by no means clearing the uh, 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 guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Moses says, Lord, I want you to show your mighty power. Let me ask you this. How difficult was it for God to wipe out the entire Egyptian army in just one moment of time? Doesn't seem very difficult at all. In fact, I don't, I don't imagine God up there straining to keep the Red Sea open to you. I mean, Jesus steps out on the bow of a ship and says, peace, be still. The whole nature calms. I don't imagine God the Father sitting up heaven almost like he's struggling to hold the Red Sea open. And just in one moment of time, God releases those big walls there and they collapse on the nation of uh, Egypt. And God delivers a great victory through power, does he not? But I find it very unique that Moses prays for power from God and he says, Lord, demonstrate that power through your long suffering, through your mercy, through your forgiveness. Sometimes the greatest power displayed is the power of restraint. God's anger is righteous. And he is a just God. He would not have been outside of the bounds of his righteousness to snap his fingers and kill the whole nation of Israel. And Moses says this, Lord, in your great power, demonstrate mercy. Demonstrate forgiveness. Well, that's encouraging to me. You see, in Adam and Eve's day, the Lord could have wiped out all of civilization. What, what all he had to do was kill Adam and Eve, right? In Noah's day, all he had to do was kill Noah and the rest of his family. But he always has grace to go around. Amen. Ephesians chapter seven, 3 verse 17 says this, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that, you may be in, that ye may be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, stay with me, with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height And to know the love of Christ, which passeth all understanding, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
God's greatest power is demonstrated through His mercy, His love, and His forgiveness. Moses prays for power. I like how Moses not only understands God's purpose and understands God's power, but he also understands this, God's pardon. Verse number 19, the Bible says, Pardon, I beseech the iniquity of this people. And I want you to see two things here. Number one, the resource of His mercy. He says this, According unto the greatness of thy mercy. You see, pardon and mercy are directly linked. And Moses' challenge is this. Lord, I want you to search through the depth of your mercy. And when you run out of mercy, that's when I want you to stop giving a pardon. Because he says, I want the pardon to come according to thy mercy. Or in other words, in direct relation to your mercy. Lord, you search your mercy, and when you run out of mercy, that's when you stop extending pardon. You know what the Bible says about mercy and what the Bible says about grace? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Micah chapter 17 says this, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The resource of His mercy is the greatness of His mercy. He's, the, the resource of His pardon is the, uh, uh, the, the uh, endless amount of His mercy. I want you to see not only the resource of His mercy, but secondly, the re- repetition of His mercy. Not only does Moses say in verse number uh, 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 19, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, he also makes reference to this. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. If you read through scripture, do you know how many times the children of Israel have messed up so far? It has been incredible how almost on every other page we're finding the children of Israel murmuring against God, complaining that He's not good enough and that they should go back to Egypt. On almost every single page. In verse number 22, we find that the the Lord uh, says here, He says, uh, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times... We know at least 10 different occasions the Lord has counted where they have uh, uh, somehow provoked him 10 different times. And yet Moses says, Lord, just like you've done it before, how about you pardon them one more time? Pardon them again like you did yesterday. Pardon them again like you did the day before. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 said, Is it of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed? Because his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God will never run out of mercy. He instructs his people to forgive 70 times 7. Why? Because he can forgive way more than that. God's pardon will never run out. Moses understood his power. He understood his purpose. And he understood his uh, uh, pardon. And that was an empathetic request. So finally, we're almost done. Stay with me one more time. Thirdly, we find the third pit stop on the road to faded glory is an impassioned response. 
Verse number 21 says this, But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now this is important for us to learn here. No matter what we do as Christians, the Lord will receive His glory. The Lord's glory is not dependent upon our faithfulness. It is our privilege. It is our honor to serve the Lord our God. And if we choose to reject the honor of His service, guess what? Somebody else is going to be lucky enough to do it. In fact, the funny thing is, earlier in the passage, they blame their children. They say, the reason we can't go into the land is because our children are too weak to do it. Guess who actually goes into the land and does it? The children. That's unique, isn't it? We find that we make excuses and we may say, oh, we don't have enough time. We're not able. We can't do it. But at the end of the day, if Christians would just get in line and begin serving God, God says, I'm not dependent upon you to give me glory, but I will receive glory through you if you'll just serve me. What a privilege it is to serve our God. God says, my glory will fill the earth. There's no question about that. But look at what they lost here. Verse number 22. Their lives were saved by the plea of Moses, but their purpose was lost. What was their purpose? Oh, that God might receive glory. You know what? God doesn't receive any glory from children that don't follow Him. God can't receive glory from children that aren't winning battles or accomplishing great feats in His name. There's no glory to be had by circling the same bush out in the wilderness. God had such great plans for them. And guess what? Because of their lack of faith, because their inability to trust God in the moment that really mattered, because of the faded glory of days gone by, now God says, you missed out. And the great purpose that I had for you, no longer you can have. (laughs) It's funny, but they became a wondering generation instead of the generation that displayed His wonder. What a shame. Until a Christian begins to fulfill his true purpose in this life, we will be aimless. It's kind of like every lunch day, me and my wife leave this parking lot. We, every work day we go to lunch somewhere. Uh, I figure it's a little tough to ask my wife to work full time, be a full time mom, clean our home and then ask her to cook lunch. So <laughs> we go out just about every day. And we try to find the cheap places, but we get in the car, we start the car, we put it in reverse, we back out of a parking spot, we throw it into drive, and we start heading towards Burleson. Somewhere along the way, this question will be asked, where do you want to go to eat? Obviously, just like all of us, we have the same conversation you have, I don't know, what do you want? We do this every day, all the time. What I find unique is, where are we going right now? We're moving. Right, The car's in drive. We're traveling down 174. We're passing restaurants. We don't know where we're going. We're just going somewhere. And it is not until we actually make the decision, pull into the parking lot, get out of the car, and go into the restaurant that I can receive any glory. Amen. Especially when it's a place I like. A wing stop. There's some glory there. Amen. Uh, I like El Phoenix, chips and salsa. There's some glory there. My point is this, when you have no destination, you cannot give God the glory. 
Too many Christians in this life are just wondering. No purpose. I promise your purpose is not tied up into a secular job. It cannot be. If your purpose is to make money for your employer, what a shame when all the money is gone and your life is no longer, your health is no longer capable to make money. What a life is, what life is that? So, so what do we find ourselves? Well, Christian, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Find your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is to serve the roles that God's called you to serve. If you're a father, be a good father. If you're a mother, be a good mother. If you're a child, man, be a good child. God has roles for us, but He not only has roles for us, He has places of service for us. What are you doing for Him right now? Where are you serving Him? At some point, the Christian life can't be all about intake. You know what I mean? A bucket can only hold so much water. Some of us have been sitting under preaching for years and years and years, and you say, well, I'm not getting anything out of preaching anymore. Well, what do you expect after 25 years of sermons? Now it's time for you to take the next step in the Christian life, which goes from discipleee to discipler. From goes from student to being teacher. What are you doing for the cause of Christ? Yeah, sure, their lives were saved, but their purpose was lost. You know what your purpose is, Christian? To live for God. Colossians chapter 1 says this, For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be uh, uh, dominions or principalities or power. All things were created by Him. Do you know the next three words of that? And for Him. Your life is created for a purpose. You have a high calling in Jesus Christ to serve Him. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Yeah, sure, their lives were saved, but their purpose was lost. Notice this, number two. Their lives were saved, but their pleasure was lost. Do you know what was in the promised land? (laughs) Right? Do you know what was on the other side of this decision? All they had to do was step out in faith and guess what? They get to eat from the grapes with clusters long. They get to, they get to go into the land of flowing with milk and honey. Could you imagine swimming in honey? That would be awful. They, they get to go into a land which is so bountiful. And their choice is this. Choose to obey and go enjoy. Or choose to not trust and wander in the wilderness. You know what's really sad about this? After God makes this decree and this decision, you know what happens? They say, Lord, we've sinned. Now let us go. God says, no, that's not the way it works. You missed your opportunity to live for me, to serve me, and for me to be glorified through you. Too many Christians at the end of their life look back on their life and they say this, I wish I would have done more for Christ. I have never one time heard one Christian look back on their life and say, you know what, I wish I'd have done more for my employer. You know what, I wish I'd have worked a couple more hours overtime. You know what, I wish I'd have made a little bit more money. I've never heard that, but I have heard over and over again, I wish I would have done more for the cause of Christ. They, they, They missed out on the pleasure that was in the promised land. Do you know what the promised land pictures in the Christian life? A lot of people think it pictures heaven. That's not right. 
It doesn't picture heaven. How could it be a picture of heaven when there's Canaanites, Amalekites, and all types of non-Christians in the land? There's no problems in heaven. You don't have to win any battles in heaven, do you? So it it surely can't picture the promised land. You know what it pictures? The victorious Christian life. Oh, yeah, there's battles in the Christian life. But we're overcomers. We are victorious through Christ. So it pictures the victorious Christian life. Too many Christians don't have the victorious Christian life. They fight the same battles each and every day, never winning them, always living in defeat. What a shame. I was reading the other day, and uh, I came across this story. I found it very unique. One day, I believe it was in 1962, John F. Kennedy hosted a dinner at the White House. I'm not a big history buff, but I found this pretty unique. 1962, he hosts this big dinner. And the dinner was meant to host all sorts of Nobel Peace Prize winners. He hosts anybody that was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He has all sorts of these folks come into the White House. I don't know how many there are in the picture. It looks like at least a hundred of them. And there they are. And he says these words to them. John F. Kennedy says this. I think that this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge, that is ever gathered together at the White House. He pauses, and then he says this. With the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. You see what he's saying? He's saying that Thomas Jefferson is smarter than all the people that are uh, collected in this room. That's a pretty bold statement. I went back and did a little research on Thomas Jefferson. This guy was a stud. Like, I mean, a stud. This guy had it going on. You know, at nine years old, he began to study Latin, Greek, and French at the age of nine. I took Greek, barely passed it at 18. Never studied Latin. And my mom knows a little French. Uh, She works at the bakery down the road. Look, I can't even begin to imagine that. At 16, he enrolled... In the college of William and Mary, graduated by 18. Two years it took him to graduate. He invented the first copy machine. He invented the first iron plow. I bet you didn't know either of those. The copy machine is actually rather unique. It's one pen connected to another pen. So that when he wrote a letter, he would always have a copy. That's awesome. That's Thomas Jefferson. This guy was incredibly smart. Obviously, he's most famous... And what's declared on his tombstone is, he's the author of the Declaration of Independence. Pretty important document in American history, if you don't know. The Declaration of Independence says this in the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And I believe that. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and he says this, the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson was an incredibly brilliant man. But I don't know if you know this, he was not a saved man. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed that there was a God, a high creator, but he rejected the deity of Christ. Meaning he doesn't believe Christ was God. Meaning God did not come to this earth and pay for his sins. Meaning if he doesn't trust in Christ, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father but by him. You don't believe in Christ, you're not going to heaven. 
Thomas Jefferson was an incredibly smart man, but he was not a saved man. And he wrote this into our Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Christian, the pursuit of happiness in your life begins and ends with your pursuit of Jesus Christ. There is no happiness outside of Him. And I hope that as you see God work in your life, it only drives you to His throne room more frequently. I hope as you begin to see God win battles for you, it only encourages you to know the goodness of your God more and more. Far too often what happens in the Christian life, though, was we allow these victories to fade off in distant memory, and we can't even remember the glory of our God at the next battle, the next opposition. What a shame. God is good. The Bible says that the righteous have never been forsaken. The Bible says that God is good. The Bible says He's full of mercy. The Bible says that He is holy. Can you just look up and see the glory of your God tonight? Because if you can see His glory, don't let it fade off into distant memory. Heavenly Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for the privilege You've given me to preach. Lord, I have no clue what you may want to do with this message. But I pray, Lord, that it would speak to someone in the room. That they would use distant battles in the past to encourage them, to drive them to faithful decisions in the future. What a shame it is if we're not growing in faith. Or if we're not remembering those times when you came through like only you could. Or may we not live the life like the children of Israel, debating on whether we should trust you or lean unto our own understanding. Or may we be full of faith. May we look at your glory and recognize it for what it is. Never short on supply. Never out of time. Or please help our church this evening. With every eye and every eye closed, please stand to your feet if you're able. Brother Sean's going to sing a verse of invitation. And if you don't mind and you're, you, the Lord touched your heart tonight, why don't you come to an old-fashioned altar, bend a knee to Him, and thank Him for His glory. Brother Sean.